0: Good morning, church. It's good to see you today. Finally back together after a week off. It's good to see you. It's good to be seen. It's a blessing uh, to be with you today and looking forward to our time in God's Word. Um, Today, we're going to be kicking off a new series uh, in the book of Nehemiah. That's in the Old Testament. And if you were to take the Old Testament and kind of divide it, it's about halfway through the Old Testament, when you're just looking at the pages. But it's actually at the end of the Old Testament, historically speaking. So uh, the book of Nehemiah, as you find your way there, we're going to be opening this morning in Chapter 1. When you think about the structure of the Old Testament, I think it's always helpful. It's helpful for me uh, to to get an idea of where we're diving into, because here we are, we're just kind of jumping into a book. So where does this book fall in the grand narrative, the sweep of Scripture? So it's helpful to, to try to get our minds around that. And so we, we know that just kind of review, um, maybe this is new information for some, but maybe, maybe review for others. But the Old Testament is divided into four sections, we could call it, uh, the Old Testament law, which is the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, Genesis through Deuteronomy, it's the Old Testament law. You have kind of narrative there, history that's being unfolded for you, but kind of the the main point of all of that is for God to give the law, his law, to his people as he forms his people and, and is preparing them for the Promised Land. So that's the first five books of the Old Testament, Old Testament law, and then you get to what's called the section of the history. And that begins in the book of Joshua and runs through technically the book of Esther, but Nehemiah is just the book before that. And so the history of the Old Testament, beginning in Joshua, covers the taking of the the promised land. Then you get to Judges, which recounts three centuries of leaders. You have a little cameo in the book of Ruth. And then you get to 1st and 2nd Samuel, 1st and 2nd Kings, 1st and 2nd Chronicles. And those books tell the story of God dealing with his people in the Promised Land from the time of Samuel all the way to when the people would return from captivity. So it's a long kind of historical section that's covered there. And then you get to the book of Ezra and Nehemiah, originally one book uh, in the Hebrew Bible, but now it's in our Bibles it's in, it's in two books. But the Ezra and Nehemiah cover the period at the end of exile when the people would begin to return. Back to the promised land. So, historically speaking, Nehemiah falls at the tail end of the Old Testament. So, this is documenting the very end of the Old Testament time frame, even though it's not at the end of the Old Testament in your Bibles. It's because of the structure of, of how the Bible's put together. Then you have wisdom and the prophets, and wisdom and the prophets cover, covering pieces and time frames all the, the way through that history. And so, Nehemiah is where we find ourselves today at the end of that time frame when God's people were taken captive into exile and now had been returning, two waves already uh, documented in the book of Ezra, and now Nehemiah will record that third wave where Nehemiah takes on an important leadership role to lead that effort. What we're going to see throughout the book of Nehemiah is how God calls him to this new assignment where he's going to help lead the people of God to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem, call for reform, and help put Jerusalem in a better place, not only to stand against the threats and uh, the threats of the surrounding nations, but to lead them to a sense of spiritual renewal as well. So we begin our text today with kind of that backdrop. Chapter one, Nehemiah is still in exile. He's still in captivity. And that's where we pick up in chapter one with our text today. Let's begin here in chapter one, verse one. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah, now it happened in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, through your, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I have chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now... I was cupbearer to the king. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for this book in the Old Testament that you have inspired for our benefit. Lord, we pray as we dive into this narrative of what's going on at the end of the exile through Nehemiah and the people of God returning to Jerusalem, Lord, that you would open our eyes to what we need to see and hear. and Lord, that you would bring to bear your word upon our lives in a way that would be transformative for our good and for your glory. Thank you, Lord, for this time now that we can spend together. Teach us by your spirit, we pray in Christ's name, amen. One of the worst things that can plague the human heart is indifference. That's true of everyone, but it's especially true of the Christian, and there are many things in this world that can lure us into indifference, apathy, just a careless approach to life and ministry, comfort, wealth, health, ease, many things that that can just lure us into being indifferent. When we think about that danger, I think that certainly there's a call from the scriptures to be on guard about being indifferent to the things of God, particularly in this life, in this world. But I think that the Lord also gives us examples and instruction through various people throughout the Bible of what it looks like for someone who is not this way and how, such a person can not only be informative in how they live out as an example, how they live out their life, but the very things that they accomplish demonstrate why it is that the ways of God are infinitely better than anything that we can fathom in this life. Now, we come to the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah is a book that involves a massive rebuilding project. I wasn't going to say this, but I'll say it. I've told a number of people, we're getting ready to study the book of Nehemiah, and they're like, oh, that's perfect, you're building a building, it's, it fits right in. It has nothing to do with our building. So let me just say that up front, Nehemiah has nothing to do with what we're doing over there on the hill, all right? We're not building a temple, we're not building the walls of Jerusalem. It has nothing to do with that. In fact, what you're gonna see in the book of Nehemiah is really a rebuilding project of the people themselves. It's a call to spiritual renewal. It's a call that, that, that God gives his people, and informs of that to, to gives that vision to Nehemiah and, and he helps lead the way. So what you find here is, is a book that does involve a massive rebuilding project. It picks up really where Ezra left off regarding the efforts to rebuild Jerusalem. Remember, Jerusalem had fallen back in 586, 87 BC by the Babylonians. They had come and attacked and taken captive into exile God's people. And now they're slowly returning through various waves to rebuild Jerusalem after their time away in exile. Ezra covers the first two waves of these returned exiles and now Nehemiah covers the third wave where he takes on an important leadership role to lead that effort. Throughout this book, what we're going to see is the Lord calling Nehemiah to a new assignment where he will help lead the people of God back to, yes, rebuild Jerusalem's walls, but he will also be leading God's people to, to a sense of reform and renewal, that they would be in a place, not only physically, that's right, but in a place spiritually that's right. So as we begin our study today, we see how God has prepared Nehemiah for this moment. But even though we think about this being involving a massive rebuilding project, or you think about the the highlights that we can find in Nehemiah's leadership leading him through this project, the book of Nehemiah is not ultimately about a rebuilding project. Nor is it ultimately about finding the qualities to be an effective leader. The book of Nehemiah is a book that is ultimately about the glory of God and how God's people must be jealous to seek the glory of God in all that we accomplish for the purposes of God. It had been 70 years, 60 some years, we'll just round up to 70, since God's people had inhabited the land, but now they're returning slowly. The city, Jerusalem, and the temple had all been destroyed and now were to be rebuilt. And as such, God's people not only are returning, but the worship of God was to return. It was to be a day of renewal and hope. But what we would find throughout the historical narrative of the Old Testament is that this rebuilding, this renewal, this sense of revival did not come easy. In fact, It was filled with all kinds of challenge. The rebuilding efforts that were documented in the book of Ezra had stopped, due largely to the threats, the surrounding threats around Jerusalem from neighboring nations had stopped. You can read about that in Ezra chapter 4. So Nehemiah's efforts are going to be instrumental in leading God's people back to the land where they would rebuild and recommit themselves to the Lord. What we find is that Nehemiah is a man of action, a man who had not given over to the indifference that could often and easily mark the people of God, but he was compelled by something much larger than himself. He was a man who cared deeply about the things of God. It becomes clear early on that he was a man who knew the word of God. He cared about God's people about the traditions of the past as well as the needs of the present and most importantly he longed to see the people of God return and be restored in their land to serve and worship the Lord so as we join in this journey with Nehemiah that's where we're going to be spending our time and that's what we're going to be looking at as we begin our journey today I want us to see two things that kept Nehemiah grounded in his faith, that kept him not falling prey to indifference, but, but really kept him grounded in his faith and resolved to honor the Lord in what he was called to do. You know, Nehemiah was a man, and the people of God in that day were, were, were a people who were not short on challenges. They were constantly, constantly facing challenge after challenge after challenge, and yet, It was going to be vital that Nehemiah and others would keep their perspective firm and steadfast. What is it that we see even here in chapter one that teaches us about how they grounded their faith in such a way that would lead them to faithfulness? He shows us two foundational things that I think enable Christians of whatever era and time to respond in a way that would honor the Lord. We're gonna look at those two together. Let's look at the first one. Number one is this, we must keep God's glory a priority. We must keep God's glory a priority. You see in verses one through four, this particularly. If you look at the last verse of chapter one, just hold verses one through four for a moment and then jump down to the very last sentence of the chapter, we get an important note about Nehemiah. He was a Jew living in exile likely had been born and raised there. He probably had never known anything of Jerusalem in the past, and now he's, that's all he's known. And he holds this position of cupbearer to the king. Now, when we think about cupbearer, that might not sound like a role you would want, having to taste the king's wine every time before he did to make sure it wasn't poisoned. I mean, that would be, kind of a life on edge. However, cupbearers were not uh, kind of a, a down, downcast role. Rather, a cupbearer was a prominent position in the king's court. In ancient times, it was a role that was regarded as important and influential. Such a person would have regular, direct access to the king and conversation with the king would be regular and so he would be a person of influence. In fact, the king would want to trust him because of his position. In the opening verses of Nehemiah, we find that Nehemiah, the cupbearer of the king, is at the king's winter residence of Susa. You find that there in verse one, modern day Iran. Some believe this was likely where Queen Esther would have lived and ruled. But while he's there in this winter residence of the king, the king of Persia, Nehemiah is visited by his brother. You see that in the first few verses. And during the visit, Nehemiah, remember there's, there's no internet, right? So there's, there's no news cycle. And so news would travel very slowly. And so he receives this visit from his brother and, 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 and a few others, and he's anxious, he's eager to ask, hey, what's going on in Jerusalem? And so he does. He asked them concerning the Jews, we're told, who had escaped and survived the exile concerning Jerusalem. And the report that he receives is not a good one. We're told in verse three, the remnant who survived the exile, these people are in great trouble and shame. Again, likely a reference to Ezra chapter four when the returned exiles were discouraged from rebuilding the temple and the rebuilding efforts were ordered to cease. This remnant, we're told, was in great trouble and shame. The walls had remained broken down and the gates destroyed, he's told. Now, we don't think much about gates and walls today, but in ancient times, the city's walls were arguably, arguably more important than its military. Without walls, in ancient times, the city was left exposed to any army or group that wanted to attack it. Thus it was weak and vulnerable. This was not at all the kind of news Nehemiah desired to hear or expected to hear. The ideal picture for Nehemiah would have had in his mind with regard to the resettlement and rebuilding of Jerusalem would have been just that, that things would have been progressing quite well. But that was not the case. The people of God were in grave danger. Not only that, we have to remember that this was a city The city of Jerusalem, it was the very center place for the worship of God's people, the very place that God's people would come and serve and worship. Nehemiah was a devoted Jew, understood that not only was the city in danger, so was their faith, so was their religion. Thus, Nehemiah's response speaks volumes there in verse four. You see, the wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. Nehemiah gets this report and he doesn't receive it and say, oh, that's just terrible. And just continues on with, with, with life. He's physically impacted by what's going on in Jerusalem. He wept and he mourned for days, we're told. His response I think is important for us to reflect on because his response shows just how much he was committed to the cause of God and the glory of God back in Judah, in Jerusalem. You see, Nehemiah would have lived in relative comfort and ease in exile. Yes, he was a Jew in captivity, but he's the cupbearer of the king. Like his life was not that bad, right? He's sipping on wine pretty much every day before the king tastes it. He's he's living life in a posh, I mean, he's at the winter residence of the king. I mean, he's got it made, He's, he's got it pretty well off. But he receives word about God's city and it brings him to his knees in grief. Even though Nehemiah is physically removed from Judah, at this point we see that his heart is very much there. Think about that. Nehemiah had a life of relative ease and prosperity there in Persia. He lived in the most powerful kingdom of the world, serving the most powerful king in the world of of that day. Living life to the fullest, materially speaking. And as he traveled around sipping the king's wine, he didn't have a bad gig. And yet, the status of Jerusalem broke him. As we will see from his prayer later on, Nehemiah was a man who knew the word of God. He knew the covenant promises. He cared deeply for his own people. He's connected, even though physically removed, he is connected in some way to the people of God and he's very much concerned about the glory of God, the name of God. Remember the prophet Daniel. Daniel ministered during the exile And Daniel, we're told, I think at some point also lived in this same area, Susa, the same city at some point. Daniel chapter 9, Daniel's praying for the people of God and specifically prays the following here in Daniel chapter 9, beginning in verse 16. Listen to what Daniel prays. He says, O Lord, according to all your righteous acts, let your anger and your wrath turn away from your city, Jerusalem, your holy hill. Because for our sins and for the iniquities of our fathers, Jerusalem and your people have become a byword among all who are around us. Now, therefore, O our God, listen to the prayer of your servant and to his pleas for mercy. And for your own sake, O Lord, make your face to shine upon your sanctuary, which is desolate. O my God, incline your ear and hear. what Nehemiah longed for, and all of that seemed to be in jeopardy at this moment. The glory of God's name, that God would return and restore the people for his name's sake, that that was the great aim and purpose for which God's people existed and would return to be a people who lived in faithfulness and in worship of the true and living God and that the name of God would be known as great back in Jerusalem. And all of that was in jeopardy. That's what Nehemiah was concerned about. He was not concerned so much about a wall or even a structure. He was concerned about the name of God being declared and known as great. I think that's a significant word for us today, isn't it? How often do we genuinely concern ourselves with the glory of God? That glory of God, that phrase is something we use often, especially those of us who have a high view of God, right? We want life to be lived out for the glory of God, but is the glory of God, that phrase, more of a Christian cliche or is it our true passion? Is it something you have whitewashed on a wall in a living room? Or is it the very motive and aim of your heart? How much are you longing for God's glory and God's name to be seen as great in your life? Are you jealous? Are you jealous, righteously jealous for God's glory and his name to be magnified in your life? In your family, in your neighborhood, in your school, in your workplace, wherever it is you go and live, are you jealous? Nehemiah was jealous that the name of God would be declared and known as great back in Jerusalem. Think about all the places even in the world today where the name of God is not even known places in the world where the name of Jesus has never been named? Are you jealous that the glory of God, that the name of God would be known and declared as great in these places? You see, Nehemiah has it all, physically speaking, but it was Jerusalem that had his heart because the glory of God, the name of God, the 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 riches of God's promises and fulfillment to his covenant. At least in his mind, we know humanly speaking, we can say those things were at stake. His life was good. He had made it, even in exile, and yet the glory of God in Jerusalem was a greater priority to him than even his personal comforts. There's a lot of things we could we could say about that. I mean, I just think about life in our own Babylon. I think the world, metaphorically speaking, we can get into a whole, whole nother conversation about eschatology later. I think this is Babylon. This is what we're living in today. This is, this is the captivity, the exile that we experience, the, the sinful bondage that we all, all are recognizing in brothers and sisters, even, even in our own exile of sorts. We've got it pretty, pretty easy, don't we? Or even right here in our, our western hemisphere, we, we've got it made. The comforts, the don't, don't apologize for them, thank God for them, he gave them to you. Don't feel guilty that you have certain privileges and blessings in this life. Give God thanks for that. Recognize that it's him that's given it to you, but understand that there's a danger there that can lure you into a, a complacency and an indifference that is ungodly. You begin to lose sight of the name of God being your chief aim, the the glory of God being your chief pursuit. We need to make sure that our ease in Babylon does not distract us from what is most important. Maybe the Lord is calling you to something. Maybe, Maybe your comfort has been a distraction to you. Until God's glory becomes our chief aim, then comfort and ease will always win the day. We must make the glory of God the priority. It was the priority that compelled Nehemiah, that drove Nehemiah to to eventually do what he's going to do. But The second thing that we see in this text How do we stay grounded? How do we fight against indifference that comes our way? How do we make sure that we are pursuing the the, the purposes of God in our life? We we must make the glory of God our priority, but number two, we must seek God's purposes prayerfully. Verses five through 11, we see that Nehemiah prays. We're told that he's doing that regularly. He said, verse four, I wept and mourned for days and I continued fasting and praying before the God of heaven. And then we're given a glimpse into his prayer life there in verses five through 11. I think it's instructive for us because we see Nehemiah prioritizes prayer before he moves to some type of action. We see how the glory of God, he's jealous for the glory of God, the name of God to be named back in Jerusalem. That's his... That's the thing that compels him, that motivates him to action. But even before he starts to take steps to actually go and do something in Jerusalem, he prays. He covers this, this desire in, in prayer. We're gonna see throughout the book of Nehemiah that he's a man of prayer. Even his practice of fasting shows his commitment to prayer. There are many good biblical examples of prayer throughout the Bible. In fact, I would encourage you, one of the best places, if not the best place, to learn how to cultivate a powerful prayer life is by reading people in the Bible that pray. Quite instructive, quite informative, quite helpful. There are many biblical examples. In fact, this is a great one. You know, one of the things I think is true, and it's true for me, and I'm sure it's true for many others, is that one of the reasons that our prayer lives are so anemic is because our Bible intake is lacking. And the more that we read and study and understand the scriptures, and even as we read different prayers and why people prayed what they prayed and how they prayed and what they prayed, begins to shape and form our understanding of who God is and what the meditations of our own hearts ought to be. As we walk through Nehemiah's prayer, I want us to see, first of all, that there is a structure here. Now I don't know if Nehemiah had heard about the ACTS model of praying, probably not. When I say ACTS, a, is that an acronym or an acrostic? I get those words confused. What, thank you, whatever that is. Um, ACTS, A-C-T-S, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, Supplication, right? It's kind of the default way that I, that I pray, just kind of moving through those elements of prayer. And I think we see that at least exemplified here in some fashion. And I think that this prayer that, that, that follows kind of this model, Adoration, Confession, Thanksgiving, and Supplication, is a helpful way. It's not the only way to pray. But I think it's a helpful thing because what we see even in the content of his prayer as it's structured in this way is informative to us. It's informative because of what he's about to do but also I think helpful for us as we seek to, to depend upon the Lord through prayer. Let's walk through this prayer together. The first part that we see to this prayer is, is the sense of adoration. You see it in verses five and six. And I said... This is his prayer, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servants. As Nehemiah begins his prayer, just think about the news he's just received. Jerusalem is in a mess. The people of God are in great trouble and shame. The gates are are destroyed, the walls are still broken down, and Nehemiah responds in prayer, and the first thing that comes out of his mouth is not Jerusalem. It's not the, the state of the city. The first thing that comes out of his mouth is, oh Lord God of heaven, great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love. He begins with adoration, praising God for who he is. When he prays, it's evident that he knows his Bible, that he knows the scriptures well because he affirms three statements about God. He says, "O oh Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God, number three, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who, love, or with those who keep his commandments. You see what he does is he affirms the character of God and then he calls upon the Lord to do what God had already promised to do. He's affirming God's sovereignty, God's love, God's faithfulness, and God's ability to see and hear all that's happening in the world. That's his starting point. That's the foundation from which he will spend his, the remainder of his prayer. He shows us that when we pray, we need to know who it is we're praying to. Now we just celebrated Christmas, and obviously one of the things that we do at Christmas is exchange gifts. And When the gifts remain wrapped and under the tree still, we're we're usually not impacted positively or negatively by the, unless you're a kid, probably a little bit of excitement. Usually when I see gifts under the tree, I don't think a whole lot about that. But when we open the gift, especially if it's a gift we like, we're moved to gratitude and joy. And I, especially children, I love to just watch their eyes light up when they open a gift. And in some way, that's what we do in prayer when we begin to unpack some of God's attributes. Our hearts are warmed with the joy of who it is we're praying to. I'm not saying that every single prayer has to include this don't, don't, don't get too mechanical in your praying. I know I'm speaking to a lot of engineers. Be careful, engineers, right, in your praying because it can become too mechanical and, and rigid if we're not careful. But it's a great place to start. Adoration should be a regular part of our praying. We see that Nehemiah's goal, he's being compelled because the glory of God's that he's jealous for the name of God in Jerusalem and all of that's kind of in question right now. And so he responds by praying the very same kind of prayer that, that, that motivates him to see Jerusalem restored. God's glory, God's fame, God's name. He's, he's captivated by who God is. And then he moves into a second element of this prayer, a time of confession. Second part of verse six, says, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you, even I and my father's house have sinned. We've acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Notice how Nehemiah moves from adoration, the praise of God, adoration of recognizing who God is, his attributes, and he knows, like I said earlier, he knows his Bible, so he knows the history of Israel, he knew that it was the sin of Israel that resulted in the destruction of Jerusalem and the fact that he's been born and raised in exile. And so if Jerusalem was going to be restored, God's people needed to build on a foundation, not of stone, but a foundation of restoration, of confession and repentance. And that's what Nehemiah is expressing here. He even identifies with them, stands in solidarity with his people. He confesses their sin corporately and his sin individually. So Nehemiah confesses and calls upon the Lord to remember the word commanded through Moses. All the way back in those first five books of the Old Testament, particularly there in Deuteronomy. I like a book called Prayer, Pastor John Anwa says this, he says if we do adoration right, then confession becomes the reflex of our souls. That's what adoration leads to, is confession. You see it even in structured in our service, don't you? As, As we walk through some type of liturgy, even in our service, we're beginning with praise and adoration of who God is, and that quickly reminds us that we're not him. Far from it. In fact, as we reflect upon the greatness and the glory and the holiness and the righteousness and the goodness of God, we are quick to remember that we are none of those things. That in fact, we are sinners and rebels at heart. And so it is true, if we do adoration right, then confession becomes a reflex of our souls. We understand we're not we're on not the same realm. So confession should be a regular part of our praying. It's commanded, it keeps us humble, clinging to the gospel as the source of our reconciliation in life. As we confess our sins, we are trusting God to be faithful to his promise, to forgive and restore. And that's exactly where Nehemiah is going. He's not saying, okay, Lord, Things are bad in Jerusalem and we've, we've gone through about 60 years now or so, pushing 70. Can we just forget these things happen and just kind of get things back to normal? Let's, let's get this on the fast track. He does not do that. He recognizes God in his sovereignty and he confesses the sin decades ago that had got them to this point. He recognizes that it was their own doing that got them where they were. And it would be God's doing to get them back where they needed to be. Confession. But when we see third, thanksgiving, verses 8 through 10, and while Nehemiah doesn't directly express, quote-unquote, thanksgiving, he doesn't say give thanks or something like that, It's the implied expression behind the reflection that we see here upon God's promise to redeem and restore. Again, these are, what we find in in verses eight through 10 is a summary of God's covenant promises found in Deuteronomy 28 and 30. If the people, which basically went, if the people obeyed God, he would bless and establish them securely in the land. If they disobeyed, he would scatter them, which he did do. The Northern Kingdom of Israel in 722 BC and then later the Southern Kingdom So the Assyrians came and took away the northern kingdom, and then later on the Babylonians would come and take away the southern kingdom. These are the big world powers of the day. Now Babylon had been taken over by Persia, and that's the world power of the day. And Nehemiah is reflecting on these things. He's grateful for the promise. He's, He's going back. He's like, remember what you said, God. Remember the promise you made to your people. You're unfaithful, I will scatter you, but if you return and keep my commandments and do them, even though your outcast are uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place I've chosen to make what? My name dwell there. Not to make you a great people, not to show off how beautiful your houses are and how great your wall is, but to make my name great there. You see, Nehemiah's motive and purpose was God's motive and purpose. That his name would be declared and known as great. So Nehemiah reflects upon this promise, he's grateful. And it would be this promise that would pave the way for their resettlement and rebuilding. And that's exactly what happens. When you think about God's faithfulness to his promises, That is the fuel for our gratitude, brothers and sisters. Nehemiah does this as he asks the Lord to remember his promise. And then in verse 10, he says, they are your servants, your people, whom you've redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. He's acknowledging God's work of grace in the lives of the people. Think about gratitude. Gratitude is something that very much should mark our prayers. We need to remember that God owes us nothing and yet he has been radically generous to give us so much, particularly through the gospel. We know that these covenant promises were only setting the foundation for a greater covenant that would be secured by Jesus. God's work to redeem and renew in the new covenant would not be the promise of land, but the promise of forgiveness and reconciliation that were bought through the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. So God's grace to redeem ought to shape the very way that we pray and lead us out of a sense of gratitude to God as we pray in both his eternal and his temporal blessings. But then supplication, you see that as the fourth element, verse 11, takes him all the way to verse 11 to ask the Lord to do what needs to be done. As he's worked through this sense of adoration, confession, and reflecting upon God's promises, he's revisiting the promises, he now makes his request known in verse 11. Look at verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. What man? Who's this man? This man was King Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, the man he was cupbearer for. See, Nehemiah knows that if things were going to change for the better in Jerusalem, that the most powerful human in the known world needed to be moved by the hand of the most powerful being in the universe. Nehemiah is acknowledging here that all things, even the hearts of kings are in God's hands and he pleads for God to respond. That's what we do with supplication. Supplication, we're praying, we're asking God to do things. It's not this approach as if God is a genie in a lamp kind of mentality where we just say, this is what I want, God give it to me. It it flows out of a stream of, of these other things that have happened already, of adoration and confession, of gratitude for the promises and provision of God in his life, the lives of the people. And so now he prays and he asks God. That's what we do with supplication. We're making our request to God, confessing our dependence upon the Lord and our need for him to work and to do according to his good pleasure. You see a prayer life that is characterized by a healthy amount of adoration, a healthy amount of confession a good amount of reflection upon God's promises and being compelled out of a sense of gratitude. When we, when we are spending our time praying in these kinds of ways, then listen, it will also be a prayer life that will seek God for the right kinds of things in the right kinds of ways. That's exactly what Nehemiah does. He prays and he asks God to move. You see, Nehemiah may have been living in Persia, but his heart was very much in Jerusalem. He longed to see God's covenant promises fulfilled. He was a man concerned for God's people, and he was committed to be living out for God's glory. And that concern and that commitment was what fueled his prayer, a prayer that would soon lead him to action. Nehemiah was about to receive a new ministry assignment and he was ready. His heart was in the right place and he waited for the Lord to act. Listen, he was at the peak of his career, cupbearer to the king. You can't be a better cupbearer than that. And yet he was willing to risk it all to see God's glory sought in Jerusalem. He was not indifferent to the cause and purpose of God. Even exile couldn't take that from him. Even though he was far removed physically from Jerusalem, his heart was very much driven. Why? Because he was a man committed to God's word. As his mind and his heart was shaped by God's word, it led him to to, to have a radical passion for God's glory. And not even a pagan nation like Persia could rob him of that. Friend, it may be that the Lord is calling you to something new. A new ministry, a new way to serve him, or maybe simply a renewed focus of where you already are. Regardless, if we're going to be faithful stewards, if we're going to be committed to the purposes of God, we must be a people who are compelled out of a sense of holy jealousy for the glory of God and to live out our lives in dependence as we pray and trust God. Let's pray together. Father, we are grateful for this glimpse into not only this man, Nehemiah, but Lord, all that's going on around him. Father, we are thankful that you have preserved this for us in your word that we might see it and learn from it that our own hearts would even be reshaped this morning and renewed in a way that would compel us to live as people who are jealous for your glory, to be a people who are dependent upon you through prayer. Lord, it may be that, that these two things have been embarrassingly absent from our lives. We can't remember the last time we were motivated by the glory of God and that our prayer lives at best are anemic. Father, would you help us? Would you help us to return to you today in a way that, would be, that we would be marked by these things, that we would be a people, even though we're far removed from Jerusalem, we have no interest in, in rebuilding a city. But Lord, that we would be a people consumed with jealousy for your glory, for your name, to be known and to be celebrated and worshiped and treasured wherever we are and wherever people exist. And Father, that we'd be a people dependent, people broken, a people who are looking to you every day of our lives. So Lord, would you help us? Would you forgive us when we have neglected these things? Would you renew our hearts even this morning and help us to see what we need to see and to follow you in joyful obedience, we pray. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.